I came from a sporting background and I went to the USA for a scholarship and for basketball and I was, you know, the top salesperson at Johnson & Johnson a few years in a row. So I was used to achieving. And then when you go from that into motherhood as well as fighting this chemical imbalance inside your mind where you've got this anxiety and just this pure sadness and these feelings of despair, oh, my goodness, that was so frightening. And all I kept thinking was I just wish I could get my old self back. Hi guys, and welcome back to the Rate Active podcast. We're bringing you insightful conversations to help you live an active and inspired life. So make sure you hit subscribe so that you get the latest episodes as soon as they are released. I'm your host, Rachel Jay, and I'm so excited to welcome my guest to the show today. She is the founder of EQ Minds. She's also the author of The Mindful High Performer. She's a keynote speaker and is regularly featured in Marie Claire, Sunrise, Channel 9, ABC News, and many more. Welcome to the show, Chelsea Pottinger. Thank you so much, Rach. What an absolute joy it is to see you here today and to be on your show. Thanks so much. I'm so excited for this chat because firstly, I think one of the things that really stuck out to me with your work is the fact that your business is actually called EQ Minds. That to me is a super, I mean, for those of you listening, EQ stands for the emotional quotient, which is, I guess, the opposite in a way of IQ. Um, so I'm so excited to get stuck into all of this amazing stuff that you've been doing. And you've recently released your book, which is called The Mindful High Performer. Yeah. And there's, which congratulations, because that's amazing. Thank you so much. There's, there's quite a story behind how this came to be and how you've come to work in this space. And you share a lot of your own experiences dealing with mental health and specifically postnatal depression. So I am interested to hear more about your story. Can you share a little bit more about how this all came to be and what was going on for you at that time? Yeah, absolutely. So for a lot of the people that I haven't met before who are listening, my story sounds quite familiar of a lot of people's. You know, I used to be in the corporate world 12-hour days, alcohol to take the edge of the stress. And a lot of people live like that, right? And then in the morning, exercising, you know, running to yoga to quickly decompress and triathlon training and coffees, you know, injecting coffee into pretty much my veins and like getting up and going and doing another 12-hour day, this real rise and grind uh, strategy. And so I worked hard, I partied hard and I worked out hard. Really unsustainable pace. And then in 2015, after giving birth to our gorgeous little girl called Clara, and we had a lot of difficulties falling pregnant. So it took us six years to fall pregnant with Clara. So I really, really wanted her in our life. And then after giving birth to her, something really horrendous happened, and that is that I suffered severe postnatal depression and so so severely, it crippled me so quickly that I actually ended up in a psychiatric ward, you know, a psychiatric hospital, six weeks post-birth fighting for my life. Wow. You know, not really where you expect to land <laughs> after giving birth to your to your firstborn. And, you know, to be honest, Rach, when you're laying in a hospital bed, you kind of get two options. You know, I think life gives you these forks in the road and either one, I could go down one path, which was to go back to my previous life, you know, pre-mental illness, fast pace, keep up, keep doing that. Or two, I learn and I grow from this gift that the universe has given me. And so my psychiatrist at the end of the five-week stay, when I finally started feeling like a bit more like myself again, you know, they got the medication right. They were teaching me a lot of different things in the hospital. And I started feeling like myself again. She said, you know, Chelsea, you've got this weird fascination with the brain. You are such a lovely person and you've walked through the shoes of a very unwell patient. Would you consider studying psychology and re-kind of inventing yourself? <laughs> and I wow. said, okay, I'll do it. So I left Sydney. I moved to a small town called Jerringong on the New South Wales South Coast. I went back to university to study psychology. I am still there studying. I'm going to be studying for years, I think. It takes a very long time to become a psychologist. I am a mindfulness meditation coach these days. Uh, and since founding EQ Mind, and the reason why I founded that company was because 
I never wanted any other Australian or anyone else across our globe to end up in a hospital bed like how I did. And so from that came this flame in my belly of empowering and educating people to take care of their mental health. And and to date, like we've trained nearly half a million people across Australia and across the globe, like arming them with mental health tips and tools. And that brings me so much joy and so much gratefulness that I survived that period of time and now doing something with that. Yeah, it's so amazing. And I feel that, I mean, one of the things that I find is, is, is quite common in this space is that people who do work in this space tend to have gone through something personally where they've experienced something along their journey and like you maybe not so expected and have now sort of brought them to this place where they want to help other people so that they don't have to go through the same thing that they did. Um, but it's it's quite an interesting contrast, I feel, from your life before. Um, it looked very different and I suppose to go from that really high-performing corporate world to someone experiencing, I know I've heard you say before that you've, you were experiencing feelings of anxiety and sadness and even experiencing episodes of crying and guilt. Can you take me through how that contrast really affected you? Because to go from a really high-performing corporate person to experiencing postnatal depression what did that bring up for you well I think and that's a that's a really really great question and I think you know this shift of identity right like I've gone from this corporate woman who was I was very much used to having particular ways to function so I was probably quite type a I mean if you looked in the dictionary for type a high functioning (laughs) you would definitely find my name next to that (laughs) I was just always having lists and ticking things off and I came from a sporting background and I went to the USA for a scholarship and for basketball and I was you know the top salesperson at Johnson & Johnson a few years in a row so I was used to achieving and then when you go from that into motherhood as well as fighting this chemical imbalance inside your mind where you've got this anxiety and just this pure sadness and these feelings of despair oh my goodness that was so frightening and all I kept thinking was I just wish I could get my old self back and when you and I was so unwell you know I actually end up ended up in hospital because I wasn't safe out in the public like I was suicidal I was really unwell and Thinking about that now, you know, to go through the depths of that, you sometimes need, for me anyway, that challenging time has really helped me grow a lot as a human being. Like I know now the depths that my body and mind can go and I know that I'm going to recover and I know that I'm going to be okay. And walking through the fire like that, like and having that lived-in experience, I think also it helps me, like I have significant empathy for mental illnesses and it really helps me have those conversations to somebody if they are going through some kind of struggle. So it was jarring on every level going from high performer, very happy, very optimistic to like dark, depressed, sad, despondent, helpless. And so it was a real real dissonance, that part of my life, but it's been a... I guess the trajectory since then has been absolutely incredible. And that's why I say to people who are suffering or going through a mental illness at the moment is that you you will recover. And I think when you're in it, you don't feel like you're ever going to recover. Like you feel like this burden and this sense of helplessness. But that's why it's so important, Rach, that we have these conversations. And I'm so grateful to you for letting me share my story because maybe just one person listens to this in terms of who's out there and it impacts them to go, wow, I'm where she was and if Chelsea can recover, that means I can too. And I think that's the beauty of normalising these kinds of conversations. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think also with COVID, I think one great thing that's come out of COVID is that mental health has become, generally speaking, so much more normalised than previous to COVID because we all experience sort of this collective thing where, whereby... It, it was normal to have experienced feelings of anxiety or depression through that time. So um, I agree with you. Definitely having these conversations is so important 
so that we can all, I guess, become more educated as well and, and feel that connection with other people that are experiencing sim- similar things to us. Mm-hmm. One of the things I think that you just you just touched on there, which I think is really interesting, is this idea of identity. And especially as women, you know, we wear a lot of hats and play many different roles across different contexts. I, I'm interested to know how did you perceive yourself before you became a mum? Mm. And how did that change for you when you did become a mum because I think also culturally speaking, there is this, there is a perception of what a mum is and how a mum functions in, in the kind of broader context. But for you, how did that change your perception of yourself really? Yeah, for sure. So I had very high expectations of what I would do as a mum, you know, uh, breastfeed and like different, like what my birth was and, you know, kind of again like ticking those things off on the list like the perfectionist that I was I'm now a recovered perfectionist thanks to the help of my (laughs) psychologists and great (laughs) things that they helped me with and stuff that I learned at university it's just amazing to be able to let that go because at the start I was like yep I'm gonna be the super mom and then what I realized after giving birth uh was that I couldn't be and and that's totally okay you know, even the guilt around breastfeeding, you know, a few weeks in, I had to switch Clara to formula. And that was a huge thing for me. That was a huge thing that I was battling with internally, right, with guilt and shame and how much pressure we put on ourselves as mums and on other women. And and then so it's that whole thing now for me is about really enjoying the ride instead of focusing on the finish line and to be a lot kinder to myself and not to have all these uh, shoulds around I should make Clara the perfect nutritional lunch. I should be there for pick up and drop off. I should, you know, like just let yeah. that go because, mm. you know, when you are actually kind to yourself and you're investing into yourself as a human being, they get a more mindful, happy version of you and they get your calm energy Whereas when we're putting up this really like a lot of pressure on ourselves. So I think that was the biggest shift pre-Clara, uh, you know, BC, perfectionist, and then after Clara. <laughs> Not anymore. I'm just yeah. a lot more chill these days and just a lot more content with with the lifestyle that we lead. That's amazing. So that's so good to have come out of that experience. Mm-hmm. But even just you saying there, the pressure, do you think that pressure is that's a that's a cultural message that we hear that you know in terms of you have to breastfeed and it, it's a failure if you if you switch your child to formula or you have to do all these things otherwise you know for some reason it's seen as a negative where do we get the, this this messaging or pressure from yeah i think one of the main things is social media you know comparing our lives with other people and how they got their baby body back you know right after pregnancy but we don't see that they've got a personal chef and a personal trainer and you know a lot of help around them so I think social media is a huge one around comparisonitis you know keeping up with everyone else on the on the feed so that would be number one number two it's probably uh internal pressures on ourselves that we we do that you know when I was in hospital as well there's a lot of uh noise around breastfeeding and why breast is best and yada yada and again I think we just got to drop the judgment and just go you know what breast or formula you can't tell who's a formula fed baby versus a breastfed baby if you have to have mm-hmm. a c-section go for it right if that makes if that means that you're healthy and the baby's healthy and it's a good outcome do that um so i think that whole thing around you know my mother's group was in double bay <laughs> in sydney <laughs> <laughs> so no pressure yeah, so you can imagine the caliber yeah. pressure i was competing against in that sphere um, yeah. low dry hair you know the kids are speaking french at the age of four weeks and i'm like what yeah. <laughs> um so i think it's really important around and, and my girlfriends are just amazing like we never put pressure on each other so i think it's really important around the people that you keep in your life and just yes. being aware of where that pressure is coming from and and it's a beautiful space to get into where you just you get really comfortable in your own skin. And, you know, I always think as long as it doesn't, my decisions and what I do doesn't hurt my husband or my daughter and my immediate family and friends, then, then that's okay. You know, like mm. I feel like a lot of people throw shade at each other on social media around what we should be doing or shouldn't be doing. And, you know, Brene Brown's got that great quote around if you're not in the arena, you know, you can't throw stones, like you've got no peace mm. in that space. And then I read this great quote the other day that said, uh, if you have a problem with me, give me a phone call. 
if you don't have my number, we don't have a problem. <laughs> <laughs> I love that, that so much. Isn't that so good? So true. It's amazing. All of those shades behind a social on comments, like everyone's so brave behind a computer. But if you, you know, and I'm just like, who, who are these? Who are they? I don't know who they are. Mm, I'm just blocked them yes. and move forward. And that's such a beautiful strategy for people in social media who've got a presence and just if you don't know that person and they're on, they're trolling you on your feed, block and delete and move forward. Don't give it another moment of thought. Um, unless, you know, due diligence if it's something that you need to, like, digest. But majority, right, they don't know you. They don't know, mm. <laughs> they don't know who you are. So yeah. that's a really good um, anchor point. As long as it doesn't hurt my daughter or my husband, you know, and that's when I'm vulnerable and authentic about whether it's taking medication or about my mental illness or I always factor them into the things that I share on my social media. Yeah. 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 I really like that. And there were so many great lessons there around doing what works for you and really the comparisonitis piece is huge. I think social media plays a lot of, you know, it's quite detrimental in some ways if you allow it to be. But like you said, you sort of just have to focus on if it's okay for you and doing right by you and those close to you because they're the ones that actually know what's going on in your life. Yeah, 100%. Absolutely. Now, one of the things that obviously these ideas that you talk about high performance, but also in contrast, I think high performance can almost be perceived as being almost in complete contrast Mm -hmm. to mindfulness, Mm -hmm. which I love this so much, which is why um, I think this this whole concept of what what you're doing and bringing them together is so amazing. So can you speak to this? Firstly, the, the perception of high performance and mindfulness and how they actually go together but seemingly don't at the same time. (laughs) I I loved the title because it's kind of like the barefoot investor or, you know, it's this juxtaposition and you're like, what? And this is so, so true because for years what I was hearing in the corporate world, my executives that I train and, and a lot of different audiences was that, Charles, if I meditate or if I practice mindfulness, I'm going to lose my edge. I'm like, what? Right? Yeah. But the yeah. opposite is true. Mm. When we are mindful and we slow down, we actually become more productive and doing less things means that we're doing the, the right things that we're focusing on, we're doing them really well. And also the brain is a muscle. If you gas this thing, you're going to beast mode 24-7 without taking proper brain breaks throughout the day, without actually doing things to recharge and retrain your brain, without taking mini retirements throughout the year and having a holiday, you are going to, you know, burn yourself into A, multitasking, B, fatigue, three, no joy. You're literally going to wake up one day with 0% battery in your brain. Yeah. And so I think, you know, taking these mindful moments and at the I mean, we can't deny the science anymore, right? Like the science mm. backs this stuff that when you do these kinds of things for your brain and your body, you become more rested and also then you are able to achieve more in less time. So that's why I love this whole mindful high performance. And it's not just for work, it's for in life. Like I've got so many beautiful mums and dads that they stay at home, they care for their children and they've read the book and they're like, oh, my God, this is so helpful for me and so helpful for my children. And, you know, to be fair, their job is harder than my job, you know, like, For sure, my job, like travelling and keynote speaking, is heaps easier than being at home uh, raising Clara. (laughs) (laughs) So my heart goes off massively to the parents out there who are staying at home and doing a beautiful job and their purpose is being an amazing role model for their future, for the future generation. I think that's just awesome. Oh, I think it's just so, so cool that you're able to bring these two things together and really provide the scientific backing as well to really highlight why it's so important. And and like you said, not just within a working context, but throughout any area of life. Um, what are the top strategies we can kind of put into place to create this mindful foundation for ourselves? And, and it's not just about high performance. It's about optimal energy, like you said, productivity, and, and more so not just productivity in terms of doing more, but effectively using our time and energy. Really, that's a that's a good question. It's a big one. So I would say, you know, building this sort of mindful foundation for high performance, the strategy you can put in place, I always say to people, everyone's on their own unique journey, right? We've all got our own bag of busy or what we're up to. 
um, and also for our health and performance-wise. So it's, it's all unique to the individual, and that's why in that book we give, like, hundreds and hundreds of different kind of hacks because I always say to people, you lean up against one thing that's really going to resonate with you, and I always recommend people to start small. You know, say you've had a 1,000 bad choices to get you to where you are and you're feeling lousy and no energy, you can't change a 1,000. You just change one and you start there, right, just these one small changes and you implement that and when you've nailed that in, it takes on average about 66 days to form a habit, right? So I don't know if you want to to jot that down, but that's a long time, right, on average for the human brain to to hook it in as a non-negotiable And so then once you master that, then you can move on to the next. And so for some people out there, it could be, you know what, Chelsea, the very first thing I'm going to do from your book is gut health, right? We can't deny it anymore. Gut health is completely linked to mental health. The very first thing I'm doing when I wake up in the morning is instead of smashing my first piccolo, I'm going to have a glass of water and then I'm going to take some maybe probiotic, prebiotic greens, and then I can have a coffee, right? And that could be the one thing they do differently to nourish their gut health, For other people, it could be sleep. You know, I always think from a performance level, it always starts the night before, right? You need, we need to get quality rest. So maybe it could be something around their sleep. You know, it's just half an hour before your bedtime, you get off the screens because what we see in research is that it disrupts circadian melatonin and you do a healthier bedtime routine. For somebody else, you know, it could be when they, for, for their day for productivity, they could work in these 90-minute ultradine rhythms, which kind of mirror our circadian rhythms at night time. So they go 90 minutes deep work, take a five-minute brain break. That can't be on tech, by the way, everyone. <laughs> five-minute brain break to recharge the brain needs to be something like meditation or going for a walk or going to get yourself a cup of tea or socially connecting with someone like your neighbour or whatever that is. And then you come back, right, and you're back in 90 minutes in the saddle and you might be listening to binaural beats to get you into kind of the right focus state. And so for someone else it could be learning to meditate. And so there's so many things that we can do from a performance level to constantly tweak, you know, these one percenters. And for my husband and I, we're just on this journey consistently because everything that I learn at university, every podcast I listen to, everything that I read about is all around mental health and well-being. And so we're constantly learning new things and we're just adapting because life is about opportunity cost, right? So you just constantly just literally tweak, tweak, tweak. So you're just kind of on this self-development journey and we'll be on this till, you know, the day we skid out of here in our coffins. Yeah. Oh, I love those so much. Just those little tweaks and even just that little one of doing 90 minutes of, of focused work and then taking a five-minute break away from screens. Just little things like that that you can insert into your day that can really make a big difference in terms of your, firstly, your your mental state, but also the output that you're, you're um, expending. Now, one of the things that I think is super interesting that you've spoken about before is how you put, put yourself into certain states when you're about to go on stage to speak. And I'm really fascinated by this because my approach to coaching is informed by many of the philosophies around changing your state, changing your physiology and creating, you know, optimal states for performing in different contexts. So I'm curious to know what your process is and, and particular rituals are around this particular state that you get yourself into? That's a really brilliant question. And so and for people listening, it might not be for public speaking. It could be going for an interview. It could be a wedding speech. It could be a first date, whatever's like causing you a little bit of stress. And a couple of key things that I do, one, I always work out in the morning, regardless of what's going on, I will always sweat every day. So I move my body, right, to give me the right energy to sustain that for the day. Now, when I get to the event, a couple of things, right, I'm always going to bump in half an hour early, always, because I like my client and myself to be really low stress. So I bump in half an hour early. Before everyone comes into that room, I am in there setting the intention, And it goes something like this. Now, just to in my mind, right, I send out energy into the room. May you be well. May you be happy. May you live with ease. And may you live with peace. And I send that energy out into the room to create the right space. Then as people are coming in, right, whether it's 40 people or 2,000 at the ICC, my AV teams, I know pretty much every AV team now, (laughs) they do about 10 keynotes a week, so I know all the teams, And they know this, that I'll do a breathing state with them. So because I'm getting aroused for the stage, I'll usually do a longer inhale in, shorter exhale out. 
<sighs> because I like to be in a high-performance state. If I was going to calm myself down, it would be the opposite to that, you know, so a, a, a shorter inhale, slow, audible exhale out, <sighs> something like that. And I usually do that coming off the stage. But because I want high energy for the stage or if you are going in a race, I would change the cycle of the breath like that. Yeah, that's amazing. It's so fascinating to me because you can literally change your physiology through the breath. And like you said, breath work is it's the quickest and easiest way to change your your state. And for those of you listening, breath work is, I mean, I think mainstream wise, it's becoming more popular. And so we're understanding the power of the breath firstly. But like Chelsea was just saying there, you can literally change your breathing patterns to create a certain state which changes, firstly, your physiology changes your emotional and mental state to put you in a particular, I want to say state, but that's not really what I mean. It's just a whole aura around you of of the vibration, I guess, that you want to be in for a particular, you know, if you're speaking, like you said, you want to be a bit more high energy. If you want to bring yourself into a more meditative state, perhaps, or calming yourself down, you're slowing down the breath, Mm -hmm. working a longer exhalation. I love that so much. This kind of stuff is so exciting to me. <laughs> so talking about, I guess we're talking about emotions, but there's this element of emotional resilience, which you speak to a lot. And I think it's a term that we we all are familiar with. It's a, It can also, I think, be seen as a bit of a vague concept because we can understand it intellectually. Okay, yes, I want to be emotionally resilient but not actually understand what it means to embody emotional resilience. So can you explain what it actually is and how we can actually create emotional resilience? Yeah, that's a really, that's a cool question. And I think with emotional resilience, you know, if we're out there, to be honest, in life, having a crack at it, I always feel like, you know, we're going to stuff it up at some stage. <laughs> we're going to hit the pace <laughs> and we need to. Right? We need to do that. That's an inevitable, inevitable part of life is to have ups and downs and it's going to happen to you. If you haven't gone through it yet, it will, unfortunately, throughout your life journey. Life will throw us COVID. It's going to throw us a setback, a challenge, a change. And I think, you know, with this whole emotional resilience or flex, you know, to not just bounce back but to bounce forward from these kinds of experiences, this is when we learn a lot about ourselves and it's having particular things in place. So one of the things that I learned from university that I thought was really cool uh, was Dr. Carol Dweck's work around the power of yet. And so I find that really, really helpful uh, in terms of, you know, I can't public speak yet because what Mm. yet does is it takes the full stop off all of our potential. It says that success still lies ahead, right? We might not have all the answers right now, but with hard work we can get there. And then at uni, we've kind of turbocharged Dr. Carol Dweck's work with these words. So I don't know if people want to stop and write this down. However, if I. And so when you say that after the end of that sort of fixed belief is that that's what's going to put action up against your lesson, the however, if I. So let's riff out a quick example here. I can't speak publicly yet. However, if I join Toastmasters, I have more fun with it. I practice regularly what happens is you will. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the been the most one of the incredible things for me to learn about because then I can teach our daughter Clara. And so if I've got anyone listening who is a parent or is an auntie and uncle or this is probably the most transformational tools we can teach our future generations because there's nothing worse, to be honest, than seeing a little one develop a negative self-belief. And so our daughter Clara used to always come up to me when I was when she was four. Mummy, I can't skip or, Mummy, I can't ride my bicycle or, Mummy, I can't climb that tree. And I used to always say to her, yet, my sweetheart, yet. However, if you do these few things, you will. And now I always have a joke with my husband about this because now she'll come to us at the age of seven and she'll be like, Mummy, I can't surf yet. However, <laughs> you pay for my lessons. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, she's like this champion negotiator these days. But the wow. beautiful thing is, Rach, is that what breathes hope into my heart so much and my husband's heart is that we now know that Clara's got a growth mindset and I know that when the going gets tough for her, she will push through and she's going to hit the pavement. It is a, it's a necessity and she needs to hit the pavement in life because that is where the grit lies. So I think it's changing our mindset around these challenging times 
That's where we build the chink in the armour and just knowing that, that, that from challenges, from some of the darkest of moments, that's where we grow the most as a human being and that's what forms up the emotional resilience. Mm, 100%. I, I love what you so much of what you just said there and I think it's so true, right? We need to go through those difficult times because, like you said, that's where the growth happens even though it's, it's often painful when we're going through those times, challenging times, mistakes or failures that we may have. But I really love those words, just changing your mindset and saying, I can't do this yet. However, if I dot, 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 action steps that you can take to transform basically your relationship with whatever it is that you're you're looking at, that at the moment it, it's not a reality for you. But if you do these things, you can. And so... I love that so much and almost it's, it's a way of thinking at, thinking about emotional resilience as an opportunity to increase your growth mindset mm-hmm. and and taking those lessons and, and putting them into practice across the different areas of your life. I love that so much. I think one of the top things that a lot of us struggle with, regardless of what field we work in, uh, you know, these terms, anxiety, stress, burnout, they're kind of almost like throwaway terms now. Everybody has anxiety. Everybody gets stressed out. Everybody, you know, gets burnt out. And almost to the point where it's become the norm and and possibly even perhaps sort of thought of as a bit of a badge of honour, especially in the corporate world, to to kind of say, well, you know, this is just how busy or successful I am because I'm so stressed, I'm so anxious, I'm, I'm burnt out. So what are your best suggestions for dealing with these almost normalised, you know, um, negative or perceived negative emotional states. Yeah, I think, you know, it used to be when you'd ask people, how are you, and they'd always say busy. Now I think people just go, I'm anxious or I'm stressed. I think you're right. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's just standard now. And you know what's so bizarre, Rach, is that, you know, the obviously the great resignations happened in the USA and what we're seeing here in Australia in the corporate world across all industries is that people are walking away from careers that they love and that they've invested in for years, citing burnout. That worries me. You know, they're not even going to any other jobs. They're just literally laying on a beach for four months trying to recover. And so we want to get to that before they spiral into that burnout. And three things that I feel like that pinpoint my people burn out the most, and this is what I hear about, is one, lack of boundaries. (laughs) (laughs) Getting to invest in ourselves. And three, trying to tick everything else off on our to-do list. And so I think if you are dealing with stress and anxiety, it's going back to the basics. You know, it's things like your nutrition, you know, eating as clean as we can, it's sleep, it's movement, it's some kind of stress management technique like meditation. But on top of that, it's these things that actually really help me with longevity and also to constantly have joy in my life. And so that is taking mini retirements. So every, and I learned this from Tim Ferriss, who is an amazing author and entrepreneur. He wrote this book called The 4-Hour Workweek. I loved it. But this is the one thing that I took away from his book that was a pearl, was that so often we we wait, right, to we get our super, our funds at the end of our life to go and enjoy our retirement. And then what's happened is we've flogged our bodies so much that we actually were burnt out and we don't have the capacity to go and go skiing in Japan or go, you know, hiking overseas or whatever that looks like. And so he was big on, you know, booking these mini retirements throughout the year to enjoy your journey. So as a culture at EQ Minds, and I always encourage my um, teams to do this too, but definitely as, as founders of the company, we, we take a break every six weeks. Now, this doesn't need to be a week long, you know, at a, some kind of amazing, you know, expensive extravaganza. This could be the weekend where you go camping, right? So it doesn't need to be expensive, but what it needs to be is regular and it needs to be you getting off the grid, And so every six weeks I do that. And what happens there is two weeks before my trip, I get really excited, right? You speak to anyone who's about to go on a holiday, they sound really chirpy, which is super annoying if you don't have a holiday booked in yourself. (laughs) (laughs) So true. True, right? And then so you get this beautiful serotonin release about the looking forward to the trip. Then you get back, people feel like post-holiday blues, but don't worry, right, because six weeks from then you're going to have another break booked in. So it keeps you going. It keeps your longevity going. And on those breaks, the most important thing that I do is I switch off from tech. So my team schedules all our posts up on later.com. We use a scheduling platform for when I'm off the grid. I'm not on Instagram stories. You will not find me for those periods of time. And the most incredible thing happens, Rach, is that 
when you switch off from the world, you switch back on, on the inside. And I get more creative for my company. I actually spark so much happiness at the end of those trips and I'm really present and in the moment with the people that I'm travelling with. And so that's been a real game changer for me is consistent breaks and then scheduling those micro things in the calendar every day like the meditation or movement or so it gets you to those six-week breaks. But honestly, that's been a game changer. I love that so much. Mini retirement. (laughs) I love it. Every six weeks. And I think you're right. We do need to, especially in today's day and age with the tech that we're on, we're always on our phones Mm -hmm. or doing something, looking at a screen to really just have those moments of of screen-free time away from the tech and and come back to who we are. Absolutely. all of that stuff, you know, that, that we're so used to in our culture. I really love that. Now, one of the things that you've spoken about before is vulnerability. I love that you just brought up Brene Brown then because she's obviously the queen of vulnerability. Um, but you've, you've talked about how it's important to open up and, and, you know, I think sometimes it can be really scary to do that. And so I'm really interested to know what are your sort of tips for opening up? Because I think there comes with this a bit of fear around being criticized or judged or, you know, in that way being exposed. It's it's almost like there's a there's a fear that comes with what if I show people who I really am and I'm for some reason rejected or people don't agree with me or something like that. How have you been able to do that and what's sort of your best tip for opening up and being vulnerable? It's a really, really great question. And I feel like with this vulnerability piece, if you don't want to share something about your personal story, that is absolutely okay. You know, a lot of, uh, not a lot, but a couple of my good friends, their husbands went through pretty significant anxiety and depression, were medicated and uh, hospital admission. And, you know, I got it, I was with them right by their side through that whole process. And they said, Chelsea, please don't tell anyone. And I said, oh, I never would. You know, that's, I've got that, I've got you. It's right between me and you. But then I had another one of their good mates telling me the same thing. And I thought, wow, if only you two knew that you're going through the exact same stuff together, you could really help each other. And so people need to be feeling very comfortable or confident about sharing that kind of story. For me, my intent always is whenever I share about my mental illness, is that if this saves someone's life, if this helps one person in this whole room that I'm talking to, then that my own experience is worth it. And so you need to be in that headspace, right? And then the second thing is, is that the best leaders that I work with are the vulnerable ones in terms of that's how you build connection with other human beings. You know, it's this authentic self. It's not this like mask and perfectionism. You don't make friends like that, right? It's actually Mm -hmm. human experiences. And what happens when you share is that you allow someone else to feel more confident in them sharing their thing that they're going through. And we're really lucky, Rach, I think in this time now, you know, there's been so many amazing vulnerable leaders, public figures, athletes that have really trailblazed a path to make vulnerability a lot more acceptable. And I'm just going to give a little shout out to Jessica Rowe because, you know, it was Jess's story that really saved my life. One of the one of the key pivotal things that happened was someone gifted me Jessica's book when I was suffering postnatal depression. Mm. And that really helped me by her normalising that conversation. And since then we became friends and, you know, I've had that moment to say thank you to her for, for being such a shining light for me in the darkest of times. But... I think it's that whole thing around it just makes it more acceptable. If you are feeling brave enough to share, then that's amazing. And I always say, you know, no judgment ever. You know, I think we just need to be kinder in this life. And, again, as, as much as you can, try not to give a shit about what other people think about you. You know, I think that comes with ageing too. It's a beautiful thing about ageing. You get wiser and also you're a lot more comfortable and content in your own skin. So, yeah, I just I just really feel <laughs> strongly about that, that it doesn't matter yeah. what people think. Yeah. Mm, and to be yeah. honest, most people are just thinking about themselves. 90% of people 100%. are just up in their own head going, I wonder what they think about me. They're not thinking about you. They're thinking about them, wondering if you're thinking about them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, so true. So true. I, I think that's so nice to, to kind of hear, you know, also just to be, vulnerability is is a connection tool, Mm. you know, and like you said, we connect with other people's stories and 
just knowing that other people have gone through similar things to us is how we can really form those those connections and bonds with people, which I think is fabulous. And, and you know, with Jessica Rowe, I mean, what an amazing um, story that you were able to connect with her because of her book, you know, amazing. Um, and I think there's this interesting connection and link between vulnerability and like you touched on their boundaries. And Brene Brown has a really amazing quote around this, which is vulnerability without boundaries is not vulnerability. Mm. So there's a bit of a, you know, I guess there's a fine line, right, in terms of opening up, but then also finding where that line is and creating those boundaries for yourself. So I'm interested to hear your take on this and talking a little bit more about boundaries. How do we set them for ourselves and how do we know where our boundaries are even. Yeah, I love that quote. And everyone's really different, you know, and just as important, everyone's in a different stage of their journey, whether you're recovering from a mental illness, from cancer, from a divorce or whatever stage that's in. Uh, So we have to have boundaries that are set and move to match kind of those stages that you transition through. And, you know, when I relapsed at the start of last year, 2021, and that is because I signed the book deal. (laughs) (laughs) and the deadline was too tight you know it was was three months or 70,000 words and I got overwhelmed and anxious and had anxiety insomnia that night and I'm like oh no and I called my psychiatrist and she's awesome and I'm like oh I've really effed myself here and she's like what have you done I said I signed a book deal and she's like well well done she's like where's the deadline I said three months she's like wow well that's not going to happen and uh, (laughs) she put me back on medication and she's just amazing and so in that period of time that wasn't the time for me to be vulnerable right then because I had to recover, right? So my husband, who's the most caring, supportive, gorgeous human being in this world, he's also like my number one bouncer in Australia. In fact, you can't get to me anymore unless you go through Jay. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You have to go through Jay to get to Chelsea. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, which is he's just awesome. And he's, his number one thing is to protect me and Clara. And uh, so... When I went through my relapse, I knew, I, I know this beast. So I knew the recovery four weeks, right? So I had to take four weeks off the grid. My company knew it. Um, everyone knew it in my family and my close friends. And so what I was doing there was just pulling back on everything, setting those really clear boundaries of right now. Sometimes you have to take a pause and a rest on the things that you love to do for work to look after you. And so I had to do that before I could be strong enough to then come back on social media and say, hey, guys, I've just literally gone through a mental health relapse. And just to let you know, I'm back and I've recovered and I'm now on medication and I'm going to do this book, but it's going to be a year and I'm going to get a ghostwriter to help. And so that was a really important stage for me. And to be perfectly honest, again, like with the universe delivering me certain things like that, mental health relapse, I was kind of grateful that that happened when I looked back on it. Even when I was in the trench, I was hating it. I'm like, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm back here. But I wasn't back to the same place I was in postnatal depression because I picked it up earlier because I know my signs. And uh, But the, the good thing was, was that it changed the book. So what happened there was, you know, we speak very honest and openly about everything in that book, you know, gut health, sleep, mindset, goals, mindfulness, you know, productivity, And that last chapter is called your toolkit. And what that chapter is about is that if you're doing everything in this life, right, I meditate, I surf, I eat clean. If you're doing everything and your body still needs more serotonin, it is absolutely okay to consider medication. And I wanted to own the stigma on that because Mm. so many people feel shame and guilt around that. And I'm like, we don't shame other people for taking an asthma pump when their asthma flares up. Why are we shaming people for taking serotonin when it helps them thrive every day? And so that that was a really beautiful outcome of that relapse. So I think it's, it's you've got to have the, if you've got the vulnerability, you have to have the boundaries in place because otherwise you're going to deplete yourself too. And I know everyone gets excited about trying to help heaps of people, but the number one thing you can't let happen is for you to fall down with the ship. Mm, yeah, I really, I really love that. Just... Also, just picking up on what you said there about where you're at in your journey, because you can be vulnerable, but really understanding where it is that you're on and what you need at that period of time and whether that's the right time for you to be vulnerable. Because you can always share when you feel like you said, 
at a stronger place mm-hmm. where that where what you've gone through can be of service to other people. But whilst you're going through it, to really understand what you need around that to take care of yourself. So I really, really love that to be mindful of our own needs, mm-hmm. you know, as we go through this life. Now, you mentioned before that, you know, you have been a really high-performing athlete and played basketball over in the States and all of that kind of stuff. And also, I guess, being in the corporate world, um, having that kind of high-performance mindset. Now, for me, you know, I'm, I'm now in the health and wellness and fitness space, but I didn't grow up playing sport. But one of the things that I have found so incredible are the lessons that I've learned from movement and also being part of a team. And so, I'm, I'm really interested to know what you've learned from playing sport at that level and performing at such a high level that you now take into other areas of your life. Mm, I would say a couple of things. One is resilience, like that grit, because you get rejected <laughs> a lot. <laughs> and so you learn to bounce back and tweak things and do things with a different approach to make the next team. So I think that would be one of them, you know. Um, two would be hard work. You really learn what discipline is like. And I'm exceptionally disciplined in my life when it comes to my mental health and well-being. Like this is the body that needs to take me right up into the last breath. And also with work. I'm very, very disciplined with work and with my study. So that's been a huge thing from sport. And I'd say the third thing is around how to be part of a team. It makes you really social. It makes you really connected in with people. It makes you learn about other people's strengths as well as your own, as well as your weaknesses. And so I think that would be the best three learnings that I've had. And I look at my our daughter, Clara, and at the moment she does karate, piano, swimming and gym. But eventually she will go into a team sport because you learn so many great skills from playing with other people. So that would be my learnings. Yeah, I love that so much. And I, you know, when I think back to my childhood, because I didn't, I didn't really play, apart from at school, I didn't play sport outside of school. And so now being in the space where I have, you know, sort of more colleagues and peers in the space where you can connect on this activity that you're doing together or movement that you do together, it's, I find that there's so many lessons that I think, especially like you said, for the next generation to learn from. So mm. it's, I, I, those lessons are very cool. Now, one of the things that I speak to all my guests about is rejection and failure because this is something we all experience in life. So I'm curious to know, what has been your biggest rejection or failure and what have you learned from it? Mm. So my biggest, I guess with failure or rejection, the biggest lessons I've learned about myself and grown the most as a human being would be definitely from perinatal anxiety and depression. For me, I viewed it at the time as a failure, right? Shame, guilt, that kind of stuff, being a new mum. But it has been the honestly the biggest turning point in my life. You know, it's really helped me start a new journey, uh, a new career. I've become a better mum because of that. Uh, so everything I learned in psychology or keep on learning, I teach those tools to our daughter Clara as well. Uh, I've learned to be less of a perfectionist, so that's been great. Uh, and exhilarating sort of this growth and this thirst for for new knowledge. I've got such a curious mind and I'm constantly working out new ways to empower and help people to take care of their mental health. So without that, I would never get to here. And so again, like enormous gratitude that I went through that experience because my life is like pinch me moments most days. Yeah. Mm. I love that so much. And I find with most people, it's your literally your biggest rejection or failure has been the best thing mm-hmm. that has ever happened because it just usually has, has taken you on this totally different path that perhaps you never thought would happen and has brought you to this place where you are now. So I love that so much. Now, my final question for you is if you had an overarching life philosophy or mantra that you try to live your life by, what would that be? I'd say it's self-care is not selfish, it is self-preservation. I'm really working hard on rebranding self-care for everyone out there. Uh, So I just feel like people feel guilty or shame for investing into themselves. I'm like, hey, if you want a happy life and you want longevity, you need to start investing into yourself a lot more. And, you know, I'm always looking at really cool research around when uh, you take care of yourself, like have a massage every week or... um, we do that every Sunday. We have a massage every Sunday. 
But there's some cool research where children who observe their parents doing that, they get better self-efficacy. And I'm like, amazing. So every time I have a facial or a massage, I'm like, Clara, this is for you, darling. I'm doing this. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Well, it's role modeling, right? So if they can see that their parents are taking good care of themselves, then it becomes, it's implicit learning, which I love. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the show, Chelsea. I've loved this chat so much. I'm sure that we could chat for hours about all of this stuff and just geek out to all of this amazing stuff. So thank you. Thank you so much. Um, And I know that's you know, everyone listening will have learned so much from your journey and um, from all your insights as well. So where can people find you and all of your amazing work? And also, where can they find your book, The Mindful High Performer? Thanks for having me. I've loved this chat too. So people can find us at EQ Mind is probably our biggest platform. We have about 100,000 corporate professionals and parents and things like that that follow us there for tips every day on mental health and productivity and performance. And then Chelsea Pottinger Official is my personal Instagram handle. Uh, When it comes to, we've got a podcast called EQ Minds Recharge Your Mental Health and the book, The Mindful High Performer, that is available in all bookstores, Booktopia, you know, if you want to get online. And also if you're like, Charles, I don't have time to sit down and read a book, it's okay because it's now available globally on Audible. So that's, uh, that's, you can get the book kind of anywhere. And we would be so grateful if you not only read that book, but you also learned one thing out of that whole book and you teach that one tool to someone that you love more than yourself because two things happen there. One, you burn it down here into your memory centre stronger so you hook it into the habit and two, you're bringing someone else that you love more than yourself on this mental health and wellbeing journey and I think wouldn't that be a beautiful nation, a beautiful globe? We're just all helping each other out, you know, one breath at a time. So thanks, Rach. Thanks for having me today. What a joy. Thank you. It's been so amazing. So, so amazing. And so many great things that Chelsea's doing. So guys, we'll pop all those links up in the show notes where you can find Chelsea on Instagram and also EQ Minds, also her book, The Mindful High Performer, the podcast and Audible where you can get the audio version of the book. Now, Guys listening, tell us what you loved and learnt from this episode by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. Make sure you tag us and screenshot this, share it to your socials. Thank you again, Chels, for joining me on the show. And thank you guys for listening. We'll catch you next time on the Rach Active Podcast. <laughs>